uh, are going to continue here in December in this Outlining the Story series. Uh, in fact, I kind of hinted last week that we are headed toward something. We are definitely headed toward something that comes at the end of this month. Um, and we're, we're uh, looking at kind of the broad brushstroke uh, overview of the Old Testament and where the Old Testament was headed, uh, which was to uh, the birth of, uh, of the Son of God, right? Um, so we're headed that direction. Um, but we've got some, some ground to cover before we get there. And, um, and we have just come out of this, uh, this period, the last couple of weeks, where God uh, is working through this one man, Abraham, and then his sons and his sons' sons, and then their descendants, uh, in, in starting to lay out his plan for uh, humanity. And, and part of that plan is to enter into this relational contract with the people, right? And, um, and part of that contract is him laying out like all of the details of how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to do justice and how they're supposed to uh, uh, do righteousness, which is to be in right relationship with each other and with their God. And, um, and he lays out this really, 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 really detailed uh, um, group of, of covenant stipulations, these laws, um, and the people say, we're on board, right? We're, gonna, we're going for it. We're with you. Uh, we want to do what you want us to do, Yahweh. Um, and then uh, we see in reality last week that they just failed miserably at that. That everything they said they would do, they didn't do. That they, were, um, they would go through times where they would come back to, to covenant faithfulness, but then the next generation would be unfaithful again. And then they'd come back to covenant faithfulness, and they, the next generation would be unfaithful again. And, um, and what we see is just uh, unfaithfulness. Infidelity is the word that I used last week. This, uh, this idea that they can't really seem to get their stuff together in any sort of cohesive way. And so we get to this point where we have this cycle of the judges, right, where um, where. The people do evil in the sight of Yahweh, they're breaking the contract, then um, Yahweh backs away from the contract and bad things happen to them, then uh, they come back to Yahweh and say, hey, save us, we don't like these bad things that are happening, um, and Yahweh sends a leader to help them, we call that leader a judge, um, and then th the next generation falls into the same problem. They do evil in the sight of Yahweh, uh, Yahweh leaves them uh, to their own devices, bad things happen, they cry out to Yahweh for help, uh, Yahweh comes, uh, you know, saves them with this leader, and then the next generation does evil again. And we have this pattern over and over and over and over and over again for 300 plus years, right? Um, the thing that we should begin to be getting at this point, and we will continue hopefully to get as we go on, is that the problem is not on God's side of things, right? He is the covenant keeper. Um, and in fact, he is merciful and, and gracious toward the people that when the people uh, break the covenant, but then decide to come back to him, he is gracious to receive them back. He is the faithful one. But we can't get our stuff together. We as people can't figure it out. We can't obey the simplest instructions, right? The very first instruction he gives that was the very first instruction they broke, right? Um, and, and the infidelity is completely on our part. The unfaithfulness is completely on our part. Um, and 
so they're at this point in their history where they're looking back at this, this 300 years of just kind of a mess as a nation, that uh, they're just constantly under attack because they're constantly unfaithful to Yahweh. And, and the question comes up, like, where do we go from here? We don't want to keep, keep doing the same thing. We don't want to be in the same pattern that we were in before because it's not going well for our nation. We need something to happen. We need someone to come in and save us. And their premise is right. They do need a savior, no question. Where they look to for their savior is, is, is going to be problematic. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we, uh, as we get into this uh, study this morning, Lord, I pray that you'd help uh, us just see our, uh, our fault, faultiness. There's something wrong with us as, as a people. There's something wrong with us in humanity that we, can't, we cannot seem to be faithful to you, um, and that we look to, uh, to um, certain situations and certain people to help bail us out of the trouble that we get in, into, and, um, and we're not looking to the right place, which is to look to you. So I pray as we look at kind of these failures um, of the Israelite people that we, could, we can relate to them, because I think we can, um, and that we would recognize our need to look to the right place uh, for our salvation, the right place for our being bailed out of our situation, um, the right place to trust in, and that's you. I pray that you'd help me get out of the way this morning and that the text would just be uh, clear. I pray this all in your name. Amen. So we started with this uh, repeated... Uh, pattern in Judges, um, that, you know, the, the, the people did the evil in the sight of Yahweh, you know, they, uh, he leaves them to their own devices, uh, they, uh, you know, don't like that, he, they come back to him, uh, Yahweh uh, offers them a bailout, right? And as this process continues on and on and on, later on in Judges, we get another theme starting to come in, and it's this theme says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Judges 19, now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Judges 21, in those, this is actually the last verse of, uh, in all of Judges. This is where it ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Keep in mind, in, in Israel at this time, there's no like law enforcement officers. You know, there's no guys like Ted patrolling around in his, in his patrol vehicle, right? Um, there's no uh, FBI, there's no DEA, uh, there's no uh, CEA, like Covenant Enforcement <laughs> Administration, I don't know. Uh, there's, no, uh, there's no county sheriff, right? So, what, what was happening is the community were the ones who were, um, who were meant to hold the people in covenant faithfulness, right? If someone uh, got out of line, the community was supposed to take care of that. The problem with that is, is when the community was out of line, there was a problem, right? You had no one to bring them back to faithfulness, right? And so in their minds, they thought, we just don't like this cycle. And you understand why they don't like this cycle, we need more than what we have in our prophets and in our judges and our leaders. We need a hero. 
We need a savior. We need someone to come in and fix this problem right now. Now, you and I probably have the answer for who they need to go to to be saved, right? It's not who they go to. In fact, toward the end of uh, their 300-plus year uh, period of the judges, you have this guy named Samuel who rises to prom- prominence in Israel as a prophet, and, uh, and he's made the judge a judge of Israel, the last uh, judge, um, and he does a great job in that role. He's a, he's a, good, he's a good judge. He's a good leader. Um, but look at what happens. This is 1 Samuel 8. It says, now it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. He's dying. He's appointing his sons to, to take over. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel's sons are bad news. They are unjust. They are unrighteous. We don't want them to lead us. They're going to lead us badly. Um, they're going to lead us into bad things. So our solution is, we need a king. And do you notice how, how they say it? We need a king to judge us, to lead us, like all the nations. Like all the other people groups on the earth. Which is true, all the other people groups had kings. I, when, I, when I think about this, I actually think of like, the parent who says to the teenager, the teenager's like, oh, I want to go do this, or I want to go do this. And they're like, no, you can't do this. And they're like, wait, all my friends are doing this. And what, the, what does the parent say? If, if the rest of your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge, right? Uh, if everyone was jumping off a bridge, would you do it? Um, and Israel is going to say, yep, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go jump off a bridge too. Uh, the problem with this request, we should see it right away knowing the context is that this is not what they were called to, right? They were called to holiness. Um, You are to be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and I have singled you out from the peoples to be mine. Mine, they were called to be different than anyone else. And instead of being different, they wanted to be just like everyone else. They wanted to do it like everyone else did it. And in their minds, it just makes sense, Right? When other nations uh, had times of instability, usually what you would do is oust the current king and get a new king in there because kings can stabilize things. And we want that. And Israel had never had a human king at this point. So they thought the solutions to their problems, the, the, the solution to their instability as a nation was to have a king. We need governmental reform. And, and if you think about it, it's a direct slight on Yahweh. Because all the other nations, all the other people groups, uh, city-states, all, they all had kings, and those kings made laws for them. Who made laws in Israel? Yahweh, right? They led soldiers into battles and expected to bring victories. Who led the people into battles? Yahweh. Who brought victory? Yahweh, Right? Uh, kings would set up leadership structures within their domain. 
Who set up the leadership in Israel? Yahweh, Yahweh right? Uh, they, uh, they would go and, and, um, and, and decide who to go to war with, who not to go to war with. Who decided who Israel was going to go to war with and not go to war with? Yahweh, you see the problem here? A king was never a part of the covenant contract. It was never meant to be a part of the covenant contract. Because Israel was meant to be united under one king, capital King Yahweh, right? He made laws for the people according to his justice and righteousness, way better than human justice and righteousness. He led Israel into battle, and they won every time. That's a good king. He raised up prophets and judges as leaders. He told the people when to, to wage war, how to wage war, with whom to wage war. But Yahweh for them was not enough. Look at verse 6. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they will say to you, because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them out of, up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have abandoned me and served other gods, so they are doing to you, so they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their voice, however you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. Yahweh says, just give them what they want. Understand, they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting what I've brought them. And, and, and you notice that Israel seems to think that the problem that they're experiencing is Yahweh's problem. What, where's the problem? It lies with them, Right? You guys ever had someone who, like, uh, who does something wrong, and then they blame you for the wrong that they did? Right? That's what's going on here. It's ridiculous. But he said, make sure that they know, like, give them the king, okay? But make sure, sure they know what they're getting. Make sure they understand what they're getting. It's like that phrase, be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. He wants to warn them, be careful what you wish for, because you're not going to like what you get. Look at verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of Yahweh to the people who had asked him, asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in chariots for himself among his horsemen. They will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And some to do his plowing and to gather in his harvest. And to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves will become his servants." When you cry out on that day, because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but Yahweh will not answer you on that day. He's clearly saying things will definitely be worse. Human kings are always, always become selfish and greedy and power hungry. 
We know this from history. Like, Yahweh's just saying this is the way humans work. But we know this from human history. If you look at any uh, dictatorship where you have one person in charge, there's a, do we think well of dictators? Like, just that word is, like, negative, right? Why? Because if you have one person in power, we know humans can't handle that. That power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It happens. It just happens because humans can't handle that. If a human king was what was best for them, Yahweh would have provided it, right? But he says, if you won't receive my wisdom and choose your own wisdom, just know bad things are coming. And when it comes, I'm not going to bail you out. You're stuck with the kings that you get. You would think at this point that they would go, hey, this doesn't look good. Like, this list doesn't look like a good list, does it? Does it look like something that we want? No, it's not good. You would think that they would be corrected in their thinking and go, you know what? Okay, we're wrong. Let's just stick with whatever Yahweh wants. No, they're not that smart. Look at 19. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, so that we also may be like all the nations. And our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in Yahweh's hearing. And Yahweh said to Samuel, listen to their voice, appoint for them a king. We know better. We want our hero. Give us a hero. And he does. He gives it to him. Here's the point on your handout if you want to fill it in. Israel thought they knew better what they needed. So they rejected Yahweh as their king and replaced him with a king of their own. Israel thought they knew better what they needed. So they rejected Yahweh as their king and replaced him, as, replaced him with a king of their own. So Yahweh, uh, through Samuel, uh, appoints their first king. Uh, his name is Saul. Uh, but uh, Yahweh makes it clear to them that he's not happy with this choice. Um, and he brings this massive storm uh, to them to like indicate his displeasure uh, for it. Um, and this is what Samuel says to the people. So Samuel said to the, said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. Indeed, you must not turn aside, for then you would go after useless things which cannot benefit or save, because they are useless. For Yahweh will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because Yahweh has been pleased to make you a people for himself. This is cool. They are not doing what Yahweh wanted them to do. Yahweh did not want them to appoint a king. They appointed a king, right? But, but he's saying, okay... I've let you have a king, but now that you have a king, you need to understand, keep following me. Keep the covenant with me and follow Yahweh with all of your heart because he is gracious. He is merciful. He is faithful. He is loving. Your kings are not going to be this way, but I will be this way. The problem is for the next 450 years, wherever the kings went, the people went. When the kings were faithful to Yahweh, the people were faithful to Yahweh. When the kings were unfaithful to Yahweh and pursued things other than Yahweh, the people were unfaithful to Yahweh and pursued those things. Well, let's see how our first king does here. 
1 Samuel 13 says, Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand, which is on the, the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. Now Saul waited for seven days until the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Saul's waiting to engage in battle. His warriors uh, are losing their nerve. They're starting to desert him. And Saul's kind of in a tough spot. He's like, I'm waiting on Samuel to come. Samuel's not coming in the time frame that he told me he would come. And we got to go into battle. And I need to bring Yahweh into battle. I need his blessing to go into battle. So, verse 9. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he, and he offered the burnt offering. Is that a problem? It's a problem. Under the contract, who was allowed to bring a burnt offering? Only the priests. He can't do it. He is unfaithful to Yahweh in this moment. He breaks the contract with Yahweh in this moment. Look at verse 10. But as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, since I... Since I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come at the appointed time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of Yahweh. So I worked up the courage and offered the burnt offering. Look at me, I'm great. I worked up the courage to make the offering myself. No, he's depending on himself, he's freaking out because he thinks bad things are going to go down and Yahweh's going to be unfaithful to them and allow some sort of great destruction. And so he takes it upon himself. He, he uh, puts his faith in himself and does this bad thing, breaks the contract. Look at 13. But Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment, the, the, the mitzvah, right? The, the terms of the contract of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you. For Yahweh would now have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Yahweh has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has appointed him to rule over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh has commanded you. You would have had, your descendants would have all been kings, but now that's not going to happen. Now your reign is going to finish, and you will not have any king come after you. That's the consequence. And that's what happened. First Chronicles 10, 13. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he committed against Yahweh. After Saul, this guy named David uh, rises up to be king. Uh, his son Solomon becomes king. We'll talk about those guys here in a second. But after Solomon, uh, the, the kingdoms uh, break into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. Let's look at the kings of the northern kingdom. Let's see how, how uh, well they did. The first king of the northern kingdom was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a little bit uh, nervous about uh, what was going on because they had just split into two kingdoms. You have the ten northern tribes in the northern kingdom and two southern tribes in the southern kingdom. He was worried because his people all had to travel down to Jerusalem to uh, the temple to make their offerings, Right? And so, and their sacrifices. And so he was concerned if all of his people were traveling to Jerusalem all the time, that they might go over and flip sides, that they would become a part of the southern kingdom and just stay there and live there. So he's worried about that. 
So he makes up this plan. Look at 28. He says, so the king consulted, and he made two golden calves. And he said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Two bulls. Does this ring a bell at all? Like, that was the very first thing that had happened, right? They built a bull, and it went really badly. But he's like, hey, I'm going to build a couple bulls. I'm going to put them in a couple different towns. Then you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You can just worship here. But he's violating the covenant. Why? No idols, right? Look at 31. He keeps going. Uh, He appoints priests from all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Were you supposed to appoint priests that were not of the sons of Levi? No, that wasn't a part of the covenant, right? You cannot do this. This is wrong. He's breaking the the covenant here. Uh, Look at uh, 32. Jeroboam also instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast that is is in Judah. Then he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, and the month that he had the month that he had devised in his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. He's like, not only am I going to institute my own priests uh, and have my own worship places, but I'm also going to create my own festivals, my own, my own feast. Uh, the Day of Atonement is supposed to be uh, the 10th day of the 7th month. I'm going to create my own festival on the 15th day of the 8th month. The, the, the prophets come to Jeroboam. And they're like, this is really bad, Jeroboam. You can't do this. This is not good. He ignores them completely. And Yahweh gives his final assessment on Jeroboam. Verse 9. You also have done more evil than all who were before you. You have gone before, gone and made for yourselves other gods and cast metal images to provoke me to anger and have thrown me behind your back. Therefore... I am building, uh, I'm bringing disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will eliminate from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam, just as one sweeps away dung until it is gone. That's a nice thought, right? Uh, Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the sky will eat, for Yahweh has spoken it. Bad stuff is going to happen to Jeroboam and his family, okay? And it does happen. Uh, good start, right? Good start with the northern kings. Uh, the next guy we have is Nadab, uh, and this is what happens with him. Now, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the way of his father and in his sin into which he misled Israel. He does the same things that Jeroboam did. All right, next king. Uh, we have Baasha and Elah, who are a, a, a father and son. Since I have exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, still doing the stuff Jeroboam did, and have misled my people Israel into sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I am going to burn Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So Zimri eliminated all the household of Baasha in accordance with the word of Yahweh, which he spoke against Baasha through Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of the sons of Elah, which they committed, and into which they misled Israel, provoking Yahweh, God of Israel, to anger with their idols. Same problem, same result. 
Zimri uh, is the next king. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over himself with fire, and he died. He burned himself to death because, because he did wrong and he was about to be destroyed. Because of his sins which he committed, doing evil in the sight of Yahweh, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in the sin which he committed, misleading Israel into sin. Omri. Now, Omri did evil in the sight of Yahweh and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. He's the worst one yet, right? Ahab, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. Uh, are we getting it yet? Uh, the next guy, ah- uh, Ahaziah, uh, son-, son of Ahab, did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Uh, First Kings or Second Kings three, uh, Jeroboam became king. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Uh, Jehoahaz. Uh, did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Uh, Joash did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Uh, Jeroboam did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Uh, Zechariah did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Are we getting it at this point? Like every single king, one after another. I know, I'm putting you to sleep at this point. But really, this is how the, the narrative reads. It literally, if you take these parts of First and Second Kings, it's just one guy after another guy after another guy after another guy. And it doesn't stop here because then we have Menahem who did evil in the sight of, of Yahweh for all of his days. You have Pekahiah who did evil in the sight of Yahweh. You have Pekah who did evil in the sight of Yahweh and did not desist from the sins of Jeroboam. You have Hosea who did evil in the sight of Yahweh. And finally, this is the last king and we're done, Okay. Every single king just blew it big time. They were not faithful to the covenant. Not a single guy. Were kings a good idea? Kings were a really bad idea. And so this is what happens with the northern kingdom. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and led the people of Israel into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. The, the author says what happens, which is that the whole northern kingdom is captured and destroyed. Now, I'm not going to read out all the list of charges here, but I just wanted to give you a sense of this is the list of their charges. It goes on and on and on and on because they had done evil in the sight of Yahweh over and over and over and over and over and over again. And Yahweh had warned them over and over and over again. He sent prophets over and over and over again to them to to go, hey, come back to the covenant. Come back to these terms and conditions. Come back to this, the, the Torah, the, the covenant contract, which I had with your fathers. Just come back. And not a single one of them listened to the prophets and came back and brought the people back to the covenant. And if they did, they did it for a very, very short period of time and then returned right back to evil. So look at 18. So Yahweh was very angry with Israel and he removed them from his sight and no one was left except the tribe of Judah. He wiped the northern kingdom off the face of the planet. To this day, Those 10 tribes do not exist. They're gone. Were they any better off this 450 years than they were the previous 300 years? No. Far worse, in fact. 
Point on your handout if you want to fill it in. Most of Israel's kings led them into unfaithfulness to Yahweh and his covenant and so brought consequences on the nation. Most of Israel's kings led them into unfaithfulness to Yahweh and his covenant and so brought consequences on the nation. Now you might go, hey, you know what? We've just been talking about the northern kingdom. What about the southern kingdom? They, they weren't destroyed, obviously, right? Uh, Judah stayed around. It was good. How did they do? Well, um, 14 of their 24 kings all did evil in the sight of Yahweh. So let's go through those 14. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, they all, I, I could have taken you through it because they all had the same um, condemnation placed on them. They did evil in the sight of Yahweh. So out of 44 kings that, that Israel, Israel's descendants had, Abraham's descendants had, you have only 11 good kings who were considered good. Now we'll talk about that in a second. 11 out of 44. Imagine we've had 46 presidents in the United States. In, in the United States. Imagine if we only had 11 good presidents and the rest were complete disasters. Would we be the nation that we are now? Not even close. It'd be bad news. And these kings had far more power than our presidents have. So let's look at the good kings. Let's, let's, let's go upbeat here, right? We have some good kings. You start with David. David is the first good king, okay? He came right after Saul. He's considered the best king Israel ever had. He loved Yahweh with all of his heart. He was a man after Yahweh's own heart. Uh, this is our good king, right? Good king. This good king saw a beautiful woman, and this is what he did. Look at verse 3. David sent his servants and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not, not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and had her brought, and when she came to him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Beautiful woman. Oh, this beautiful woman's married. And in fact, married to a friend of yours, one of your commanders in your army, that would be the moment that a good guy would have said, okay, it ends here, right? She's cute, but not that cute, right? Instead, he chooses to sleep with her. Verse 5, but the woman conceived. So she sent word and informed David and said, I'm pregnant. Uh-oh. Okay, now it's time to come clean, right? A good guy would own up to this moment and make it right, right? Instead, this good guy tries to cover it up to begin with. That doesn't work. So then he does this. Our good king does this. Station Uriah on the front line of the fiercest battle and pull back from him so that he may be struck and killed. He gives an assassination order. Kill this guy for what I did. Is this a good guy? It's not a good guy. If, we, if this guy lived today and did these things, if, if one of our presidents did something like this, we would hang the guy, 
right? This is terrible. Absolutely horrific. We would write this guy off. But we don't write him off because he's King David, right? Man after God's own heart. No, 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 no. He's this guy, right? First good king. Not a great king. Second good king. King Solomon. He was good for a long time. Did a lot of good things. Uh, very, very much honored Yahweh throughout mu much of his life. Look at this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, Sidonian, sorry, and Hittite women from the nations of, for the, of, from the nations of which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They will certainly turn your heart away to follow their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Yahweh warned him, this is not a good thing for you. Don't do this, right? He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God, as the heart of his father David had been. And his own heart had been. He was wholly devoted to Yahweh early in his life. This is not good. So Yahweh said to Solomon, since you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you and will give it to your servant. This directly leads to the nation being split into two, his actions. Solomon's considered probably maybe the second or third best king that Israel ever had. This is him. Probably the second best king that Israel ever had was King Asa. This guy was good. He was awesome. He brought reforms to the country that were really, really, really good and brought the people back to Yahweh, back to covenant faithfulness. This is uh, him trusting God. This is 2 Chronicles 14. It says, Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah carrying large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin carrying shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, went out against them with a, an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Merishah. So you've got this really bad situation in which you've got 3 million soldiers and 300 chariots. Can you imagine that force? Like, that is a massive military force. And chariots were, were really, really tough things to battle against, and they had 300 of them, Okay versus about a half million guys with spears and bows. This is, these are not good odds at all. So, look at what Asa does. It's really, really good. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Shephathah at Merishah. Then Asa called to, to Yahweh his God and said, Yahweh, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. Help us, Yahweh our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. Yahweh, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So Yahweh routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Three million soldiers with 300 chariots versus a half million with spears and bows, and Yahweh wipes the other guys out. Why? Because Asa came to Yahweh and sought him and said, hey, help us out. We need you. 
About 30 years later, this is what Asa does. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of Yahweh and the king's house and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, A treaty must be made between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. He takes treasure from the temple, not a good idea, and his own treasure, and he goes and he makes a treaty with another country because this, this people group is coming into their, their nation. In fact, the northern kingdom was coming into the southern kingdom trying to beat them up. So he goes to another human king and says, hey, we got to make a treaty because I'm scared of these guys. But he, and he honestly thought, I mean, it's, it's realistic. It's, it's, if you understand these times and how, uh, you know, geopolitical things worked, this was the way to handle it. He thought, I can handle this. I can get this done. And by the way, his treaty works. Baasha, king of Israel, like backs up and goes back because he doesn't want to fight he, if, he, if, he, if this treaty is going on. It works. It seems to be a good thing. At least the results. But look at this. At that time, Hananiah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on Yahweh your God, for that reason the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. He says, You haven't trusted me. You trusted me like when the odds were crazy stacked against you. You trusted me. Now we get to the situation where you think you can handle it and you don't trust me anymore? Again, I don't know about you, but I, I look at this stuff and I'm like, I just can't believe that Asa just saw all the ways God was faithful in the past and all the battles he had won for him and all the odds that had been stacked against them and, and, uh, and Yahweh was always faithful to, to take care of those situations. And in this moment, he's choosing to trust in himself. But then I look at my own life I'm like, look at all the ways that God has been faithful in my life in the past, right? And I get into a situation where I'm like, I got this. I can handle this one. In fact, I was just talking to the elders, uh, I don't know, it's been a month probably now, uh, about this, this passage, because this, this came up at the pastor's retreat we were at. And it, it was just challenging to me because of how much I do this now how much I think certain areas of ministry and things that I'm like, man, I've, I've done that a bunch of times. I'm an old pro at that stuff now. I take it into my own hands and handle it instead of seeking him. He didn't seek him. And he asked him, in verse 8, he says, we're not the Ethiopians, right? Those guys that were really big and scary, and the, and the Lubim, an, an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on Yahweh, he handed them over to you. For the eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth, so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will have wars. 
good kings going bad. And by the way, that happens with every good king. Good, good Joash repairs the temple, serves Yahweh most of his life. At the end of life, he abandons, abandons temple worship for pagan worship. And when a prophet calls him on it, he participates in stoning that prophet to death. Oh, that's a really good king, right? Amaziah starts as a very good king, and he goes later on, and he destroys the Edomites with Yahweh's help, which is awesome. But, but now that the Edomites are out of the way, the Edomites have these great gods, and we kind of like these gods. So he starts worshiping the Edomite gods. What a good king. Uzziah reigns for 52 years, honoring Yahweh, staying in covenant with Yahweh, before deciding at the end of his life to burn incense in the temple himself, which only priests were allowed to do. Yahweh strikes him with leprosy. Oh, good King Uzziah. Good King Hezekiah, uh, whose dad had led the people into some really nasty pagan worship. In fact, he had offered a couple of his sons uh, up to Molech by burning them to death, burning them while they were alive to death. And so his dad was a bad dude. Hezekiah brings the nation back into covenant contract with Yahweh. Things are going really, really, really well. So well that later in his life, he starts taking credit for all the victories that were, that were won by Yahweh. All the treasure that was in their, their storehouses because Yahweh had brought it. And he's like, I did that. Oh, what a good king. Josiah finds a copy of the Torah in, um, in the temple that had been lost. People, they hadn't had this for, for many years. And he brings the people back to Torah. This is a really, really, really good thing. At the end of his life, he disobeys God by not letting Egypt pass through their land, which God wanted. And God allowed him to be killed. All these good kings. In fact, if you go on the internet right now and you type in good kings of Israel, you'll come up with a list of the good kings of Israel. None of them. None of them stayed faithful to the covenant. Point in your hand out if you want to fill it in. Is even the good kings were very flawed men. And most were unable to remain faithful to Yahweh until the end. Even the good kings were very flawed men. And most were unable to remain faithful to Yahweh until the end. I know we're out of time, but I just, I just want to bring it back together because I know we've covered a lot. There's a lot, of, lot in this period. But this period really as a whole should teach us something very, very, very important, which is that there's something seriously flawed in the human heart. That even the best of us will not fix our problem. Elevating flawed humans to, to places of leadership is not going to fix our problem because they're still flawed. And it's not going to address what's wrong with us nor the, what's wrong with the flawed leader. And for me, this is hugely important for us in the 21st century, because, it, particularly in America, because I think, we, I think we suffer 
from this, from what, uh, there's a, a, a philosopher, a French philosopher named Jacques Ellul, who, uh, who has this idea of the political illusion, which I actually very much agree with uh, us having this political illusion in America. And it's the idea that our primary problems are political problems. And so our primary solutions should be political solutions. Isn't that the country we live in? Like the 24-hour news cycle just, has, just puts politics right in front of us all day, every day, and says, you know what? The biggest problem going on with America is political. And so if we just get the right people in office, it's going to solve all of our problems. If, if, we just, uh, if, we, if we just vote out the, the evil people, the bad people, the wrong people, the people with wrong policies, then everything's going to be right. If we just convince people of the right policy agenda, then everything's going to be right. If we just get more people on the conservative side than the progressive side, then everything's going to go right. Or if we get more people onto the progressive side than the conservative side, everything's going to go right. Then we could fully attain to the good life that America promises us. That is an illusion. I love this quote by a guy named John Stone Street. He actually got it, part of it from a guy named Chuck Colson, who you might be familiar with. He says, salvation won't arrive on Air Force, Air Force One, and a perfect world won't come through the ballot box. And that's because we are flawed. We are human. We are limited. Salvation cannot be found in us, even the best of us. So our only solution is for you and me to place our complete trust, not in the next election, not in the next, you know, hoping that maybe we can vote out this president for a better president, but that we put our complete trust and know that there's salvation only in one, right? And that's no illusion. Let me pray for us. Lord, we just want to trust you completely. We, we see this uh, group of people who for so many years uh, just keep, kept getting it wrong. And then they try to elect the right leaders and uh, bring in the right kind of government, and they just keep getting it wrong. Because it all revolves around the fact that they don't trust you. They're not trusting you. And so we want to live differently. We want to be people who recognize our weakness, recognize uh, that we don't have what it takes, recognize that other people who we think are pretty great don't have what it takes, and that we trust completely in you, because you are the only one who can, um, who can really save. Salvation is found in you alone. May we just be convinced of that from our own lives and our own experiences but also from what history has shown us and what the history of the, the kings has shown us. That you're the only one to trust in, and we, and we want to do that this morning. Pray this all in your name.